Hey friends, Cable here, and this week's podcast is proudly brought to you by my friends over at Kent Cartridge. Uh, I've got a man, I've got a lot of history with this brand, going back to my college days when I was waiting tables just to fund my duck hunting addiction. That's when I first discovered Kent, and uh, I'd mess around with other brands, cheaper brands, and literally watch the pellets bounce off of greenheads. Uh, I found Kent, and I fell in love. And nothing's changed over the last 20 years except for, well, I'd say Fast Steel 2.0 is even better than the original. And Kent offers a premium shell at a sub-premium price. Check it out. It's Fast Steel 2.0. You can find it at your local retailer. Howdy, everybody. This week's podcast also brought to you by Spartan Forge. Born and more, Spartan Forge was conceived while targeting terrorists Think about that, targeting bad guys during deployments in support of the global war on terror. We can also use this technology because of its similarities to track mature bucks. Now it's time to get this analysis into your hands. It's military-based intelligence, next-generation mapping. I absolutely love it, and I love the people behind Spartan Forge. They're like me. Second Amendment till the day we die. No exceptions. America first. Spartan Forge. Check it out by downloading the app today. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Cable Smith, welcome in everybody into episode 641 of SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show presented by the good folks over at Mossberg Firearms. Thank you so much for being here today. It is a pleasure, a treat, an honor to be talking hunting, fishing, the great outdoors and all that implies with you fine folks. I hope that y'all have had a, a great week. Mine was very busy as uh, I flew to New Mexico uh, last week to do a little fly fishing with my dad and brothers. More on that coming up in a little bit. Uh, and then uh, went down to Austin to speak at the annual Texas Parks and Wildlife Public Meeting. As many of you know, we've got this anti-hunting, anti-trapping animal rights group disguised as a pro-conservation, pro-hunting group, which they are not, and I'll tell you more about it, but uh, Texans for Mountain Lions was there, and they outnumbered the hunters, the landowners, the houndsmen, the ranchers, two to one at the hearing, uh, and everyone had, everyone who wanted to speak had two minutes to talk, uh, so I had written uh, a nice little speech, and the gist of it was, um, I'm fine with harvest reporting on mountain lions in Texas, but you got to show me scientific data if you're going to implement stricter trapping regulations. If you're going to implement a five-cat quota in South Texas, I mean, you're, you're talking about millions of square miles and no scientific data to support changes. Eh. It also doesn't help when uh, Defenders for Wildlife and Sierra Club testify in your favor, which is what they did for Texans for mountain lions. And then uh, they had some, you know, the typical uh, granola eating non-hunters there who just couldn't stop gushing 
about their love for mountain lions. Listen, I love mountain lions. They are awesome. I spent 18 days hunting them in Colorado over three trips just to take the right mountain lion because we didn't want to take a female. Um, I absolutely love them. I don't want them to go away from the landscape. But when you let this type of ideology that is an emotionally based narrative, that's what they're pushing, and they're trying to hide it, like, oh, we're hunters, we shoot a deer every year, great. But you're the worst kind of hunter because you are the, I'm a hunter, but but I don't like trapping. Oh, I don't like when people kill bears. Oh, uh, no, we shouldn't kill mountain lions. Oh, no, there should be a limit on coyotes. Do you really need to use leg holds? Give me a break, people. Those people are not pro hunting. And and, and it, it was proven with the testimony of so many people on their side. Um, it's complete animal rights activism. And the fear is that if they get their toe in the door with Texas Parks and Wildlife, that our state agency will end up just like California, where mountain lions were protected in the 90s. Uh, black bear hunting with hounds went away in 2012. Three years ago, they actually banned taking bobcats, trapping, hunting. Nope. If you see a bobcat, that's a protected species everywhere in California. It's utterly absurd. And I'm not going to sit here and let that happen in Texas, not without a fight anyway. Uh, to their credit, they're organized and they have a lot of money behind them. So we need to get organized as a hunting community uh, and make sure. And, and I'm I'm imploring people from other states because when I see anti-hunting legislation being introduced in other states, I talk about it. I comment about it. I share it. Why? Because, and I've always said this, in Texans, sometimes we're too proud to a fault to a, oh, that could never happen in Texas. Here it is in your lap. Okay. It's happening. And it's time to stand up and say, no, we're not going to allow, we're not going to tolerate this leftist ideology when it comes to wildlife management, because that's what it is. Emotions over science. That's their playbook. And, uh, and this is on page one. So be very wary and uh, make your voices heard. Anyway, what is on, and we'll have more on this. Uh, this, this story will continue to develop, uh, maybe even have a guest next week who as a, a landowner in West Texas has a lot of skin in the game. Um, but, uh, more on that coming up. Uh, what are we doing today? You know what to do. Pull up that stool a little closer to the old campfire. Pour yourself another cup of that black rifle coffee out of granddaddy's beat up old Stanley thermos because we are ready to rock and roll. And to kick things off, of course, we're going to talk Dove. The opener is this Thursday, September 1st. I can't wait. Uh, and our Dove program leader, Owen Fitzsimmons, will be here. We're going to talk Dove numbers. Are they up or down? How has the weather been for uh Dove production, uh, the dove's life cycle. How long do these things live, typically? Uh, what about white wings? How are they doing? And then the the plight of the passenger pigeon and how that actually, and this is a weird way to look at it, but it is what it is. They're gone, unfortunately, uh, but their absence might have actually helped our dove numbers increase. Uh, so a little silver lining there. But yeah, looking forward to having Owen make his return to the show. Then we'll spend a couple segments talking fly fishing. Like I said, just got back from New Mexico. My friend Stephen Palmer uh, over at Orvis hooked me up with a bunch of brand spanking new gear. By far the best fly fishing gear I've ever owned. I know, spoiled. One of the perks of the job, I guess. But yeah, it was awesome. And to you know, spend time with your dad and brothers and, and lifelong friends in the mountains, you can't beat that. Um but yeah, we'll, we'll talk some fly fishing. We'll, we'll talk about the history of Orvis. You know, back in the day, 
they actually sold fillet knives. <laughs> Imagine that. Uh, they've been around since the 1850s, though. That's like pre-Civil War, people. Man, been around a long time. Uh, but yeah, we're not just going to talk trout, though. Stevens fished, fly fished all over the world. Uh, so some destination fly fishing experiences. And then, you know, um, what about just carping at your local reservoir? We'll talk about that, too, among other things. Uh, so looking forward to... Uh, to some fly fishing conversation coming up here in just a little bit. That's what's on the docket for today. Let's do a quick giveaway. And since we're going to be talking a lot of fly fishing, how about a $50 gift card to Orvis? It's not going to get you a new fly rod or reel for that matter, but it's going to get you pointed in the right direction. Or uh, maybe you just need some other miscellaneous fly fishing stuff. So anyway, $50 gift card to Orvis. Just email the word Orvis, make it simple, to Lone Star Outdoor Show at gmail.com. Well, let's knock out a quick break. Up next, it's all things Dove coming at you right here on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. Cable here, and if you're like me, you probably enjoy bold flavors and cuisines. And nobody does Cajun and Creole better than Chris's Specialty Foods in Frisco. Their forte includes specialty sausages, boudins, and andouille, pre-cooked soups, gumbos, and sides, where all you have to do is heat it up. What about high-quality steaks, smoked and fried turkeys, turduckins, and turduckin rolls for the holidays, plus gift boxes. Storefront conveniently located off Dallas Parkway in Frisco, or shop online at chrisspecialtyfoods.com and have it delivered to your door. Tactical Skeleton Firearms specializes in custom AR-10 firearms. They're best known for their AR-10 308 pistols. Also dual caliber AR-10 rifle systems and dual caliber AR-15 takedown pistols. Tactical Skeleton specializes in custom Cerakoting engraving, and they'll custom laser cut the foam insert inside your hard gun case. They'll also take on any exotic caliber build offered on the AR-10 or AR-15 platform. Precision machining and hand-built quality guaranteed by a lifetime warranty? Who does that? Get free shipping on your order when you visit TacticalSkeleton.com today. The original Texas Hunting Show is back. For 46 years, the Texas Trophy Hunters Extravaganza has been the official kickoff to Texas hunting seasons. Visit the world's top outfitters and guides. Get ready for the field with the latest hunting gear, rifles, clothes, and accessories. The granddaddy of them all is back August 5 through 7 in Houston, and this year only August 12 through 14 in Dallas at the K. Bailey Hutchison, and August 19 through 21 in San Antonio. Get the Texas Trophy Hunters Extravaganza on your calendar. More info at ttha.com. And I was alone there with no birds inside. I did everything that I could and went to the roost at night. I don't know where it started or where it might end. And I was in danger of being skunked once again. I was looking for diving. Of course, it had to be looking for Dove, a parody there from our good friend and my hunting buddy, James Yates. I think that's like a decade old now, and every Dove season, I got to give it a spin. So uh, thanks, James, for the humor, as I know lots of us will be out looking for Dove this coming week, Thursday. Who cannot wait. It's going to be awesome. Taking the kids out of school. Hope that y'all are doing the same. If not, if mama says no. 
uh, then get them out there on Saturday. And, uh, and really excited too, because uh, this will be little Jojo's first hunt ever. We'll see how it goes. Uh, high expectations, but big shoes to fill uh, when it comes to uh, replacing old Bell, who we lost uh, around Christmas. Um, anyway, we're about to talk some dove with our Texas Parks and Wildlife dove program leader, Owen Fitzsimmons. But before we do that, this segment is brought to you by Mossberg Firearms and the 940 Pro Series. It's their new semi-auto-loading platform. Whether you're looking for an upland gun for, for dove hunting or a waterfowl-specific model, hey, maybe uh, sporting clays is your thing. They've got the Jerry Micheluk model there, uh, so something for everybody. 1,500 rounds before you have to clean it. Okay, I'm sold, uh, but also I have one. It cycles beautifully, shoulders like a dream, and you can pick one up for under a thousand bucks. Not bad for uh, the latest and greatest semi-auto loading technology from our friends over at Mossberg Firearms. Uh, with that being said, let's bring him on right now. We do this every year about this time. It is my pleasure to welcome our Dove program leader, Owen Fitzsimmons, back to the show. Yeah, always great to be here. My pleasure. Uh, so, have you had a good summer? Man, it's been hot and dry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I actually just moved uh, into a new house, and I can tell you that moving in August, it might be the oh. worst thing on the planet. Oh, uh, but otherwise, no, it's been a great summer. Uh, hmm. uh, not quite as busy as usual this year. So, uh, yeah, you know, I had some time to get out and, and jump in the river a few times and do a little fishing and that kind of stuff. So nice. Uh, catch any Guadalupe bass? Oh, yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Here I'm here in San Marcos. So we got the San Marcos river that runs through town. Uh, and I, I fished here down to Luling, um, various spots, you know, kind of jump in and mm -hmm. fish for an hour or two early in the morning. It's pretty nice. Yeah. That's one of my bucket list, uh, fishing things. And it's not like a real, some people would be like, that's weird to have that on your bucket list, but cause it's not like sexy, like saying, I want to go catch a tarpon on a fly rod, but I want to catch a guad on a, on my fly rod. Yeah. Like what's more Texas than that? You know, that's exactly right. And, yeah. and pound for pound, man, they're one of the best hardest fighting fish you can find. Yeah. Uh, they're yeah. awesome. Um, so, well, let's get right into it. Actually, you said you've been, you haven't been busy this summer. So, I mean, other than moving, uh, which is good, you got time to go fishing a little bit. Yeah, but so little what bit. is your, what is our dove program leaders responsibilities as job description during the summer months? Yeah, uh, basically from April through August, uh, mm -hmm. we've got statewide dove surveys, uh, which involve probably 100 staff across the state. We've also got our banding program, uh, which also involves about 100 people. So just coordinating that, keeping things on track, sending bands out, collecting data, analyzing data, all that kind of stuff. Uh, that Those two monitoring programs are, are basically what takes up my entire summer and uh like I mentioned earlier, I think before we started, uh, I've, I've got an intern this year for the first time, mm -hmm. which has taken a huge workload off. That's, that's really helped me. So I've actually had some time to, to do some things, you know, after work and before uh -huh. work and stuff like that. Cause usually this summer it's, it's, I'm in here at seven and I'm probably leaving at seven, you know, basically wow. every day. So. Well, we appreciate the hard work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thanks. And it, it really, uh, it, it's really all our staff. I and mean, we appreciate I, your intern now too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm going to have him listen and <laughs> we're thrilled that I mentioned it. Um, okay. So, and this is a broad question because you're talking about the biggest state in the lower 48, but 
how are range conditions, generally speaking, for um, dove recruitment? Right now, pretty pretty poor in a lot of places. Well, from um, spring through now. I mean, and I don't think people yeah. realize that there's probably some folks out there who've have had this experience, but I've got a pair of morning dove that are nesting on my back patio right now, and it's mm-hmm. late August. Uh, so, and and this is their fourth attempt. They started in May. They did one in June, July, and now their last one, I assume, will be is is now. And they did the same thing last year. Yeah, I don't I know. Remember. I think it's the same pair of dove. It very, or maybe very they're possibly, offspring. Yeah. Yeah, um, very possible. Will they share a nest? Will like, will like this could be four different pair of dove, or probably the same one. I mean, they. I've heard of that, but but it's uh, it's pretty well known in the literature that doves will come back to the same tree, the same nest. You mm-hmm. know, if the nest still exists, usually they get blown. I out don't tear whatever, it down because I like it. They make a yeah. mess on my patio, but I, you know, it's worth it. I like. Yeah, that so it. I would guess it's likely that the same pair or the offspring has come back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, so yeah, to answer your question, um, you know. This doves do pretty well in dry weather, right? And of course, mm-hmm. this is we're, we got record highs and and drought this year. Uh, so it, in some places, it's, it's getting a little too dry. You know, I know parts of the hill country, even back in May, it was, it was just dirt. There's nothing out there in some of those spots, and they haven't har- had hardly any rain. Uh, but you know, some other areas um, where they, there's been a, a little spotty rain, it's not too bad. Uh, doves are doing well in our years. I I think probably because the food's more available on the ground, you know, doves, morning doves have to feed on the ground. They don't perch and feed. Mm So like last year, um, I'm still waiting on the numbers from, from fish and wildlife service on our recruitment, but for last year, but I think it was down quite a bit because we had one of the wettest summers on record last year. And there were, I got reports of, of some of the fields were so thick with vegetation that doves were landing on ant piles just to get on the ground. And so in a way, you know, there's too much food on the landscape in some places. So I think this year um, they're doing pretty well. And, you know, even as dry as it is, I'm, we're, we're getting some really good indications of, of recruitment this year. So okay, uh, they're cranking out a lot of babies. Like, like you said, the fourth attempt at, right. at your house. Yeah. And I think last year they made all four attempts successful this year. I'm pretty sure crow. I mean, mm. I saw a crow and then I saw the, the doves were gone and they didn't come back for like three or four weeks. Yeah. Um, so I think it depredated the nest yeah. next year. I'm going to put a trail camera on it for the, for the whole spring and summer. That'd be cool. See what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but will like, when is the cutoff point? Like, okay, this is when they're going to stop trying to nest. I think that we have records of doves nesting in every month in Texas. Um, really. but yeah, but typically they start, it really goes from April through, through August, mm-hmm. uh, peak breeding seasons, May and June, uh, that can vary a little bit depending on weather. Um, you know, but they'll nest all the way through September. Um, but mm-hmm. most of them get, get all their nesting done in, in May, June, July. Okay. Kind of trails okay. off after that quite a bit. Right on. Um, population trends, any changes there and you can talk white wings versus morning dove. Yeah. Uh, this year, a uh, slight decline in white wings. Um, mm. Not much. Uh, I think we were, I say slight decline. Really, uh, we've kind of leveled off. You know, white wings have, have, they exploded the past 30 years. They've, they've occupied basically the entire state. They're breeding as far north as Nebraska, Colorado, um, mm. moving east and west out of Texas. So um, we got more white wings basically than we ever have. But the past five or six years, it seems like things have kind of leveled off. So we've got I think we've got the white wings that we're going to have uh-huh. uh, for now, so, which is a, the breeding population is about 10 million, um, probably a lot more than that in, this, in the fall. 
morning doves, uh, we have seen, we saw a big drop off in 2017 or 2018. Mm -hmm. And I'm not really sure what caused that. We had a few high years from 2013 to 2018 or 2017. Then we had this drop off. And uh, basically what we're looking at now is a repeat of what we had the past couple of years, which is uh, below average numbers, but kind of on par with what we saw in 2008 to 2012. Um, so I'm hoping with the recruitment that we're seeing this year, indications of that, that, that the numbers will bounce back up and, you know, that big jump, I wish I could pull my graph up and show you, I've actually got it here. Um, that big jump in numbers in 2013 to 2017, you know, that kind of came after a couple of years of drought in 2011 and 12. Mm -hmm. And so um, who knows, maybe we'll see the same thing in next year or two. So, so how many, you said 10 million white wings, what is our resident morning dove population? This year, uh, 20 million. 20 million okay. Yeah, long-term average is 28. And this is this is spring breeding population. Uh, we do our surveys in May and June to kind of capture that peak, that peak breeding season. And of course, really what we're looking at there is almost like an indication of last year's hatch year recruitment uh, and survival over the winter. Mm -hmm. um, because like you said, you know, these birds will nest multiple times. And so you can have say 20 million in, in April and May and June, and if they have, if they replace themselves three or four or five times throughout the summer, you're looking at, you know, 60, 70 million possibly. Uh, mm -hmm. So, so the spring stuff is really just a kind of a way for us to track status across time. Um, we also get estimates from the Fish and Wildlife Service for fall numbers, but it's always a year after, you know, um, so. Right. Okay, let's take a quick break here. We'll come back and then get into one of the things I find really interesting, and that is how many dove Texas takes percentage-wise compared to the rest of the country. Also, are we managing these birds on a state level, a flyway level, or a federal level? Uh, I think there's some fascinating components to that discussion. Maybe even hit on the uh, the plight of the passenger pigeon and how our dove populations maybe benefited from their extirpation, uh, unfortunately. Uh, so we'll do that next, that segment Brought to you by the good folks over at Vortex Optics. I've told you now for a couple weeks that I've got a special deal for you. 10% off any Vortex Optic when you shop at eurooptic.com. That's right. They've got all of Vortex's scopes, binos, rangefinders, you name it. It's all there at eurooptic.com. Use that promo code LONESTAR10 at checkout. We'll be right back with more on SCI's Lone Star Outdoors show. Where'd you get the gun? Where'd you hide the body? Where'd you get the gun? Wow, we live in crazy times when it comes to censorship on social media. And if you're a gun owner and a hunter, and if you're proud of those things and you post about those things, then pff, you're already on the blacklist. You're getting censored. You might not even know it. Take it from me. I had my Instagram page deleted for an entire month for no reason last year. Mm-hmm. Guess what? That kind of stuff doesn't happen over at Go Wild. It's a community of people who love to hunt, fish, and cook their wild game. They also love guns. If you want to be a part of that kind of place where you're not getting censored, where they actually promote posts with that kind of content, just go to download Go Wild. It's a free app. I absolutely love it. You'll see me there posting every day. So come on, join the conversation at Go Wild. 
I'm Chris Letzinger, online sales manager at Cinnamon Creek Ranch here, reminding you we're not your typical archery club. We're a one-of-a-kind archery facility with indoor and outdoor ranges, a full pro shop, and six different 3D courses. Cinnamon Creek was designed by hunters for hunters. Located in Roanoke, Texas, we have over 200 3D targets to hone your archery skills. Call 817-439-8998 or visit us at cinnamoncreekranch.com to visit our new online store. That's cinnamoncreekranch.com. Let's face it, guys. We all would love to own land, right? But they're not making any more of it. However, there's a solution. Lone Star Ag Credit has been helping its borrowers finance their own piece of paradise for over 100 years. Whether you want it for recreating, ranching, fishing, hunting, or just to get the hell out of Dodge for the weekend, visit Lone Star Ag Credit today to start making that dream a reality. In the corners going 90, love blindly falling, head over heels over you. Yeah, but feeling that we felt was a feeling that felt brand new. And you love just like an angel. There's an oldie but a goodie there from Aaron Watson, our very own Aaron Watson, bringing us back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show presented by Mossberg Firearms. Cable Smith here with you. As always, thanks for dropping by. We're going to continue the Dove conversation as the September 1st opener is next week. I'm so excited. I, man, whoa, I'm excited. it gives me chills just thinking about it. I cannot wait. It's one of my favorite days of the year. It might be my favorite day of the year, really. Uh, now, dove aren't my favorite thing to hunt. I love it. I put it in the top five. But uh, it kicks off hunting season, and there's just no better feeling than that. Plus, the kiddos, uh, that's a fun component as well. They absolutely love it. And uh, I'm going to yank them out of school and make no qualms about it either. Uh, just go ahead and get that perfect attendance out of the way. So when I take them out of school for deer season, it's no big deal. <laughs> Anyway, uh, I can't wait. I know you guys are, are feeling the same way. This segment of the show is proudly brought to you by Rustic Reminders Taxidermy and my good friends over at John X Safaris. Uh, if you want to be a part of the May 2023 trip to South Africa for the safari of a lifetime, just shoot me an email, lonestaroutdoorsshow at gmail.com. It's going to be my sixth trip with John X, and uh, I'd love to have you join. Um, all right. Well, let's get back into it here with our Dove program leader, Owen Fitzsimmons. Uh, Owen, you mentioned earlier that we have about 20 million uh, res- resident population of 20 million morning dove in Texas. About how many morning dove do Texans harvest annually? Uh, average around four or five million a year. And they're usually between one and a half to three million white wings. Okay. Okay. And what is the the average lifespan of a dove? And that might be different between a morning and a white wing. I have no idea, but I'm curious to know. Yeah, I think white wings typically live longer because they're mostly urban uh, outside of the valley. Uh, so they don't get shot at as much. Uh, morning doves, about a year and a half okay. for the average lifespan. You know, they, if they survive long enough to make it to the breeding season the next year and crank out a few babies and and they've done their job. So that's, uh-huh. you know, that's kind of their reproductive strategy is, is um, pushing out a lot of young every breeding season. You know, they don't live very long. Uh, so you kind of see these booms and busts in certain years uh, where they can really explode in a good year. And in a bad year, they kind of, they start to drop off, but, uh, but yeah, yeah, they don't live very long. 
Well, I hope that I, I don't see the ones that are in the, the the babies that are in the nest right now in like two weeks or in a few days here. <laughs> if they hit the sunflower field that's uh you know close to the house, it might be yep. bad. I'm gonna feel bad when the dog brings them back. They're gonna be so small. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Not have any yeah. tail feathers. We've all shot those before. Yep. Those little babies. Yep. Yeah. Um percentage of nationwide harvest because we we take a lot of dove in texas it's Mm -hmm. i mean it should be a state holiday i don't know why they have school my kids aren't (laughs) going to school Uh, my wife doesn't always agree with that but she works that day so what i do with the kids she'll she'll find out when she gets home uh but yeah so how many compared to the the annual nationwide harvest what is texas responsible so we we take about around 30 percent about a third Mm -hmm. of the morning doves in the country and uh, white wings, 85 to 90%, depending on how, uh, depending on the year in Arizona, really. Mm-hmm. Um, we take most of the white wings, but yeah, it's a, it's a huge percentage. And, you know, that really comes into play. Uh, we manage these birds at the federal level, at the flyway level. So we work with all the states in the central flyway, the Fish and Wildlife Service. And, uh, you know, that really comes into play when we have these conversations about regulations and management is, you know, what are we doing in Texas and what does Texas want? Because, we're such a huge player in the, in the nationwide game. Mm-hmm. So we, do, we flex on the other states. Sometimes we, we do. Yeah. Sometimes <laughs> we have to. Yeah. I like that. Are there any states in our flyway that don't have a 15 bird bag limit? No. Or is that pretty no. standard I mean, across the well, board? I, I should say, I, I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't say no. Uh, it's a, f- they can have up to 15. Uh-huh. If the state decides to restrict it, they can, but uh, they can have up to 15. Okay. But are there any states that have restricted it that you know? I don't of? think so. No, I don't think uh-huh. so. Uh, most of have states, some states that are like not even participating. Like I think Michigan, it's like their state bird or yep. something. They need yep. to change that. Yeah, Michigan. There's a few other states in the Northeast, uh, and off the top of my head, I can't remember which ones. There's a couple that have open dove seasons um, fairly recently. So hmm. there's less states not hunting dove than there used to be. Who's second? Yeah. So Texas takes the most dove, has the most dove hunters, generates the most revenue from it. Who is the next biggest player? In, it, in uh, I looked at that a few years ago, and it bounces around depending on the year. I think um, Georgia can have, if they have a really good year, they get a lot. Uh, South Carolina gets a lot. Um, Oklahoma can get a lot. Um, California, believe yeah. it or not. Um, but none hey, of there's them. There's still even... a lot of good people in California. They've just been inundated yeah. with, <laughs> with the wrong ideology yeah. when it comes to wildlife management um right yeah but yeah none of those other states even come close i mean you could almost combine the next two or three on the list and still not Uh get what we get um are there any causes for concern looking at it from your through your lens or is everything just pretty good well we've seen a long-term decline slow decline like half Uh a percent one percent per year uh for a few decades now um we're not really seeing that in Texas necessarily. Uh, numbers have been down the past few years, and I'm not exactly sure why. Uh, but yeah, there's a cause of concern just for uh, we're losing habitat to uh, development, urbanization. Oh my gosh, I live in Collin County. It's yeah. it's uh, the places that I hunted three years ago are gone. The places that I hunted five, ten years yeah. ago have been gone for quite some time. Exactly. And that's a lot yeah. of corn, a lot of Milo, yep. things that dove love to eat. And uh, even even the ag that, you know, the fields that you still have out there, uh, all the clean ag and the, they're so efficient now. There's hardly any waste grain left. Uh, you farmers so start wasting more grain for our dove. <laughs> yeah, dang it. Exactly. And so you can imagine this happening across 
you know, the whole flyway, the central flyway where most of the nation's doves are. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and yeah, I think that's probably what's causing that decline. There's a few other things out there, but that's kind of the big one, but I, I will say that changing though. So no, it's no. just something we're going to have to adapt to. Yep. And one thing to that, that kind of on the positive side is that we still have, um, a lot of doves. I mean, hundreds of millions, you know, well, I can say that about 150 million across, across mm-hmm. the, the central flyway at this point. So still a lot, uh, hunting has very little to do, at least in the central flyway, we're pretty confident has very little to do with, with dove populations fluctuating up or down per year. It's, it's all environmental. Um, mm-hmm. so still plenty of doves out there still, still going to be hunting for a long time. Yeah. So here's one from left field. Um, and I don't know how much you've studied this bird, but I figured I'd ask. So we hunt dove pretty hard. The the harvest still, like you just said, doesn't affect the long-term population trend. I mean, it's a lot of dove that we kill, but it's minuscule when it comes to, we already said like this one on my patios on nest number four, um, the passenger pigeon, we wiped out completely. Mm-hmm. And so what is, what was the difference between that bird and the and morning doves or white wing doves? And how were we able to, unfortunately, eradicate that species? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, so passenger pigeons, to think about the scale, uh-huh. uh, we're talking, you know, 150 million, maybe 300 million morning doves in the country, right? Yeah. They estimate possibly three to four billion passenger pigeons. That's uh, they would move through and they would, it, it was almost kind of like uh, the bison, you know, these giant yeah. herds would come in. And affect the landscape at a large, large scale. We think passenger pigeons probably did the same thing. Uh, so it, I think it was a combination of hunting, but also you know habitat loss for them too. Uh, I, I'm guessing it's one of those deals where they started when they started declining. Man, they just crashed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and and the ecological functions that they provided and that the habitat provided, it just it just didn't work anymore. So that species you know disappeared. About the same time that happened that was happening as people moved west across the u.s we basically created the perfect morning dove habitat they think Mm -hmm. when when europeans first arrived there were nowhere near as many morning doves as we have now Uh, so we went through cleared land for agriculture planted windrows uh, so you had like perfect perfect habitat form and uh, so we think morning dove numbers exploded uh, as people moved west and and that's Mm kind of what we've got now interesting well thanks for that i mean i didn't tell you i was going to ask you about that but i figured it was something (laughs) that you had a little bit of, of knowledge on Um, as we wrap up here, two more things, uh, forecast for the season. And, and then I want you to follow up with your favorite dove recipe and don't say, uh, poppers because everyone and poppers are great. And I'm going to make them September 1st for sure. But of course, something outside of the box. Yeah. Yeah. So dove forecast, uh, like I said, we're, we're looking at below average numbers, uh, from the Mm -hmm. spring, but I've got really good indications of, of hatcher production this year. Um, does are going to be a lot more concentrated just because of limited water and limited food out there. So I think it's going to be pretty good. Uh, last year might've been, I'm still waiting on the harvest numbers, but might've been one of the worst openers we've ever had in Texas. Um, and I'm hoping that we, we flip that around this year and have a much better, much better season opener. Um, we are starting to get a little bit of rain. I shouldn't jinx knock on wood. We don't Uh, want the rain. We don't want it. We we wanted it. We wanted it weeks ago. (laughs) Right. Right. Uh, but, but otherwise I think it's going to be still, pretty dry September 1st. So I think, uh, hunting's going to be good. Uh, mm-hmm. if you can find the birds, find the water, you know, for sure. Um, and as far as the recipe, you know, one thing that I tried last year, uh, 
was like, I got some hatch green chilies uh-huh. and I did green chili dove enchiladas and mm. so that good. sounds delicious. Yeah, so, so good. did you fillet the dove off of the bone first yeah. or do you cook it first and then fillet it off? No, I, uh, I filleted it off and basically, um, sauteed it in some, some oil and then shredded it mm-hmm. and then put it in the, in the enchiladas like that. Nice. That yeah, sounds delicious. Yeah. yeah. Maybe not the next morning. Those hatch green chilies. <laughs> one time I was on an elk hunt with a buddy and we were in New Mexico. I've spent a lot of time in New Mexico and we sit down like our last dinner before we go into the mountains. And we stopped at this bar and he's like, I'm going to have the uh, hatch green chili chicken Alfredo. And I was like, whoa, buddy, that's not, I don't know that that's a good idea before what we're, you know, we're embarking on here. And he spent two days where he had wiped himself so raw. Sorry, Chisholm, to out you like this, but uh yeah, there was one morning where I was like, "All right, let's go." He's like, "I, I can't, I can't this morning, man. I'm in too rough shape." <laughs> nope. Yeah, Not it worth could be it. dangerous. Yep. Yeah. Well, hey, Owen, I appreciate the time as always, my friend. Uh, thanks for all you guys do. I, I really want to uh, emphasize that. I mean, we have such great dove hunting opportunity and culture here, and um, I think Texas Parks and Wildlife does a, a great job providing uh, opportunity for us to to continue that tradition. So. We appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate the support, and and I'm always happy to be here. All right, brother. Well, have a great season. Thanks. You too. Stay safe. We'll do it, brother. There he goes, our Texas Parks and Wildlife Dove Program Leader, Owen Fitzsimmons. That segment brought to you by Stealth Cam. That's what I'm going to put right next to that nest next spring, and uh, it's going to be the DS4K cellular model. That is the best video quality because of course I'm going to share it on social media so y'all can follow along with these cute little doves as they're nesting on the patio. It's going to be awesome. And you can find the DS4K cellular as well as the Fusion and the Reactor and their entire lineup of cellular game cameras right there at StealthCam.com. Coming up next, we'll take out the long rod and talk a little fly fishing with our good friend Stephen Palmer of Orvis. You're listening to SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. It's time to tell you about Protect products. Veteran-owned and made in the USA, Protect makes your water work harder for you in the field. They have a hydration electrolyte formula for endurance and replenishment. It's perfect for elk hunting, right? Uh, Energy formula for when you need an extra kick. Immunity for optimizing the immune system. And one of my favorites, the rest formula to ensure deep sleep and proper recovery. All the formulas are liquid, so they mix instantly in your water bottle or camelback. And the cool thing is, They don't gunk them up like a powder with that messy residue. They also have an easy-to-use line of mineral sunscreen for quick and odorless application and all-day protection in the field. For more info, head over to protect.com to see their entire lineup. That's protect, P-R-O-T-E-K-T.com. Hey guys, Cable here for Cryo and More, the one-stop feel-good shop in McKinney, Texas. I've been going there for over a year now. All your holistic healing needs with cold, heat, and compression therapy services. And these services, they're the fastest way that I've found to reduce inflammation and to get to the root cause of pain. You don't need to be in pain, though, in order to benefit from these services. Cryotherapy helps with burning calories, optimizing sleep, boosting energy, and much more. I can 
tell you that's true because I feel like a brand new man every time I get out of the cryo chamber. Uh, plus, compression therapy helps promote healthy blood flow. Come in anytime before 1 o'clock, 1 p.m., Monday through Saturday. Say the words cold outdoors and you'll get $10 off your cryo session. That's cryoandmore.com. I got peace of mind and elbow room. I love to smell the sage in bloom. I catch a rainbow on my fishing line. That is the late, great Crystal Dew, Western Skies, bringing us back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show, presented by Mossberg Firearms. Cable Smith here with you. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, this segment of the show is brought to you by SCI, the worldwide leader in big game conservation. I'm a proud member. Here's why. SCI puts its money where its mouth is. That's right. A lot of organizations talk the talk, but do they really walk the walk? Uh, SCI is on the front lines fighting against anti-hunting, anti-conservation legislation right there in D.C., day in and day out. You can become a member for like $65 for the year. It's dirt cheap. Well, with inflation, maybe not so much, but uh, it's not expensive, and you're going to make a world of difference, and you're going to be plugged in to the greatest group of conservationists on the planet. For more information, check us out at safariclub.org. All right. Well, let's bring on our next guest to talk a little fly fishing. It is my pleasure to welcome my friend Stephen Palmer of Orvis to the program. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, it's great to be here. We're at the uh, Orvis location in Plano, Texas. Yep. Beautiful shop. Yeah, it's it's a perfect size for this area. We have four shops in the area, and I like this one. Yeah. So we've known each other, I don't know, six, seven years, something like that. I don't, do we meet at a, a crawfish boil? Like a, at, uh, well, I think that was the DU, Allen DU stuff. Oh, maybe. the Allen DU. Okay. I don't know if we met there or previous to that, but yeah, we've been, you know, in the same circles. Yeah. So how long have you been at this location? Um, almost eight years now. Eight years. So, wow. A little while. Uh huh. And what is your, what is your job description as the fishing manager? So I just oversee the fishing side of this business on this uh, at this location. Uh-huh. Um, so anything from fly orders to teaching people how to fly fish is the main main role. So we do classes every year, um, group classes, private lessons, hosted trips, all that good stuff. So kind of oversee a lot of that, yeah. uh, along with just the retail selling product and making sure people have a good experience. Uh-huh. Well, I, I do want to talk about some of those uh, the travel and destination trips but let's wait a little bit to get into that because um i came in last maybe like 10 days ago and we had talked about uh you know a win-win situation where you guys hook me up with some new stuff and uh i tell everyone how great it is so (laughs) i came in here and uh man i had some old like tfo stuff Mm -hmm. and they're nice rods yeah they're nothing like the Helios that I got here that I knew, I mean, you told me it was a great rod and uh, I've been fly fishing for let's say a dozen years, but my fly fishing is all destination minus a couple little trips around DFW. Uh, and it's all been for, I think I did the coast once. Uh, but other than that, it's all been for trout at in broken bow or, um, New Mexico. So Oklahoma or New Mexico. So I haven't traveled a lot to do it. I've traveled. I've probably fished those places six or seven times each. Um, I've never made it up to the snake or mm-hmm. up to Idaho or Wyoming or Montana. It's all on the bucket list, but 
that rod. So we, we had nine guys that fished the first day, and this was in New Mexico in the, on the uh, Rio Castillo. And uh, I take out the Helios rod, and of course I've got all my new my waders and everything, <laughs> and everyone else just the guys are handing them like hip waders officially <laughs> pro, yeah. And they're looking at me like, who's this guy? <laughs> and then the guy was like, oh my god, that is an awesome rod. And I was like, yeah, he told me it was, but now that the guides are like all fawning over it, you know, like and. They were like they were pretty impressed. They had to make sure they touched the cord, yeah. wiggled it a little bit. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. They want to get their hands all over it. Um, but my dad and one of my brothers had never been fly fishing, so he got my hand me down old stuff, and uh, I got to play with all of the cool new Orvis stuff. Uh, but we had a great time, and you, you know you, you can't beat um, spending time in the mountains with family and friends, and yeah, to get to see my dad who is the one who instilled a passion for fishing in me. Like he's not really a hunter. I think I've gotten him, I've taken him on one duck hunt and one thermal hog hunt. Yeah. But if you say, let's go fishing, he's like, he'll sit there in the rain for hours and hours yeah, and hours. Yeah. Doesn't care. He would n- rather do nothing. Uh, than, Same than with my fish. dad. And that was passed on from his dad, who was a, a crappie fisherman and a cat fisherman. And uh, I remember my granddad, we called him big daddy. He always had a boat in his garage. And I just thought it was like he was the only person I knew that had a boat. <laughs> and my dad said that they'd go out to like Caddo Lake and put these lights on the sides of the boat when he was a kid and just attract all the bugs and mosquitoes, sit there all night, get just torched by mosquitoes for a, you know, ten crappie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's why we do it. Yeah. So anyway, that my dad passed that down to me and uh I've been trying trying to get him to go fly fishing for a long time. Mm-hmm. At one point, and I think I might have told you this, we, uh, my mom got him a fly rod and reel combo from Cabela's. It's like a cheap $100 setup mm-hmm. just to get started. He took it back and got bass, <laughs> bass lures. <laughs> <laughs> Not that was, today. That was like 10 years ago. Uh, but no, he, uh, he had a blast. And once he, once he really got into fighting the fish on, on a fly rod and reel, I think he's hooked. Yeah, and that's usually the case with most people. Once they kind of figure out the basics and they can hook a fish, that's uh-huh. where it starts. Oh, yeah. They realize. And then it's just a slow uphill climb the rest of the way. No. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty easy to pick up. Well, he had a blast, and my brother caught a couple of fish too. I did, you know, as the seasoned fly fisherman, I did catch the most. I caught I caught six fish, and we fished with the guides from like nine to three the first day. Mm-hmm. Um, I caught five that day, and then... I only caught one the next day, and it was pouring down rain. And there was only two people fishing, me and my dad. Yeah. <laughs> and he caught more than me that day. I think he caught two to my one. So, uh, But the funniest thing about our, our fishing relationship is, so he was in this bass club, uh, private water fishing club, where they yeah. lease properties, and then you can either take your own boat or they have boats at some of them. And him and his college buddy go and do that like a couple times a month. Yeah. And they have a boat that they bought together. Uh, and he bass fishes like a maniac and I've, I've caught a bigger bass than him <laughs> and it just eats him up. And I <laughs> caught it out of a, a pond or a little lake in McKinney. Oh yeah. And I sent him the picture and I've told the story on the air. I sent him the picture of, uh, of this bass and I, I actually had to tie the bass up and drive to Cabela's to get a scale. Yep. Cause I was like, this is the biggest, I don't know how big it is, but it's the biggest bass I've ever seen, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, what did it weigh? I think it was 10.28 is That's what it was. Fish. Yeah. So I tied it up, went and got the uh, scale, 
and then took a picture of the bass and sent it to him. The next day, he sends me a picture. He goes, is this where you caught it? And he's standing there. <laughs> and he doesn't even, he lives in Dallas. He drove 30 minutes to try to catch that fish. He researched that photo and yeah. found out where it was. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's funny. Yeah. The, the fishing was great. Uh, like, as far as the gear goes, so we, we the Helios is a, is a nine foot. Uh, that was a nine foot five. So five weight, yeah. They make two different models in that one. The one you got was the finesse. So there's the distance and then the finesse, the F mm-hmm. the D. Um, and that's just a good all around rod. So yeah. perfect for kind of what you were doing. Smaller fish, the D is going to be a little bit too stiff, but that one. The guide was like, like this is the classic Western yeah. fly rod. And he was fondling it, yeah. <laughs> looking at it lovingly. <laughs> so that was so that was the rod. And, I mean, I'm not nuanced enough to say, uh, like, th- to know exactly what I had my, my hands on. Mm-hmm. I just know it was better than anything I've ever used. Yeah. It was smooth. Uh, the control that I had, you know, as far as, as where I was trying to put my flies, um, it was it was awesome. And then the real is the Mirage. Mm-hmm. The Mirage LT. Mm-hmm. And just kind of touch on that rod. That's why they designed that rod is to be the most accurate rod. So, like, it makes everybody, even beginners, makes it uh-huh. easier for them to kind of get things down and, and make it happen. Um, and then the, the real is the Mirage LT, which they designed kind of specific for that lower weight range. Um, USA made real, USA made rod. Great combo. Yeah. You know, I've had... I didn't drop it, so that's good. But I definitely have dropped reels previously, and then like every rotation, you know, there's like a and yeah. yeah. So I'm gonna baby this one a little bit more. Yeah, I mean they're they're designed to be durable, and um, so drop. You, know, you can definitely can yeah, it. just don't run it over, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but yeah, they're you know they take some punishment. I mean, you can definitely bend some stuff. What's it made out of? Steel or uh, machined aluminum? Um, so bar aluminum. stock. Okay. They machine into that. Yep. Uh-huh. Um, and they machine those just, I think it's just an hour outside of where the rod shop is in Manchester, Vermont. So up Northeast. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And that, that package, I mean, for like what you're going to be doing with it when you brought in horizons on your, uh, your fly fishing adventures next, <laughs> it's going to work out really well. You know, even from, you know, broken bow our local kind of trout fishery all the way up to the snake or anywhere beyond up, you know, Canada, anything, it'd yeah. be a good rod for you. Um, what about. And the Rio Castillo is not a very wide. Mm-hmm. It's it's more of a stream. I guess it's called a river, but um, I enjoyed that way more than some of the higher altitude stuff that I've done. Because mm-hmm. as someone who isn't an expert, I spend a lot of time hung up in trees. If there's a mm-hmm. lot of overhanging branches and stuff, you know, yeah, and even parts of Broken Bow are like that too. Yep. Uh, but there are open areas in Broken Bow where you can avoid that kind of stuff uh where we were fishing this time it was just wide open like meadows mm-hmm. and so for people like my dad and brother that have never fished and people like me who have some experience uh, i think that made it more enjoyable and i would highly recommend that situation to any right. to any new fly fisherman yeah perfect scenario i mean that's the nice thing with going out west is a lot of that is that way i mean there's definitely some challenges and some intricacies but um out west is always good you know pretty easy for people to pick up and the fishing's typically pretty good and easier to catch fish than some other locations mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. let's talk about different types of water mm-hmm. and you know there's stretches of broken bow where the water is moving very slowly mm-hmm. uh this this wasn't that the water was moving pretty quick it was a little bit stained it mm-hmm. rained there that, well it rained while we were there uh, and it had rained the day before, so a little murky. But as far as 
different presentations and, and how to attack a stream based off of the speed at which the water is flowing. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you have much more experience. So break that down. And I could have been doing things totally wrong. I don't have any idea. But Yeah, I mean, I mean uh, you're just going to be looking for that type A water, you know, the best places those fish can be mm -hmm. hiding. But I always just tell people, especially new people, break it down into a grid and cover everything. You don't know where those fish are off the bat, cover it all. You know, start close, work your way out. And if you're fishing nymphs, uh, which is the bread and butter of the trout world, you know, that's what they feed on on a daily basis subsurface. Mm -hmm. um, you're going to pick up fish, you know, just by covering the water and trying to be stealthy with it. Um, if you're dry fly fishing, you know, then you're actually looking for fish rising to the flies and hopefully tying something that mimics that that natural food source mm -hmm. and then this place in the fly in front of the fish so a lot of different types of or different ways to go about it um you know from the pictures i saw that you were fishing you know you had a little bit of off tent but obviously didn't keep the fish down mm -hmm. i've noticed even in really dirty water you're the fish still will eat you know they might transition where they're they're um, laying and kind of keeping out of the current but yeah just uh the bread and butter, if you start with that, the nymphing system and figure out how to rig that, mm -hmm. it's not the easiest to cast, but that's typically the best way to start and kind of learn presentation and learn how to get a good drift. And then you can kind of go from there. And if the dry fly fishing is amazing, you know, uh, there's no reason to tie any of that stuff on. Right. Um, well, so we had nine guys the first day with three different guides total, and uh, all of them were using dry flies. Yeah. And I caught one fish and like right before lunch i was like you know he was off messing with my dad and i was like screw this and i tied on a nymph mm -hmm. and ripped off three fish in like 30 minutes yeah and they just you and know they came up and he was like what do you what did you catch all those on? <laughs> i was like ah, i'll have to kill you if i tell you <laughs> uh but no i told i told him and then he tied on one for my right. dad and you know hopper dropper style you know with mm -hmm. some floating and well, so you just use the dry fly as the strike indicator right. essentially yeah, yeah and that's uh, especially for that stream that you were fishing it's pretty shallow and narrow so a hopper dropper setup or or a dry dropper setup is going to be really good for that river and then you know if the fish start keying in more on the dry well, so define a hopper dropper setup so a hopper is just a hopper dropper is just a grasshopper imitation with a dropper okay. a nymph dropper yeah. or some sort of and the grasshopper uh, is going to have like more foam in it so it's going to it's going to float a little better right especially if you have a lower fly that's um bigger or heavier you mm -hmm. know that's going to support that system better then if you're fishing small little tiny nymphs or midges, which is another good one that's works everywhere, um, you could do like a small dry with that combination. Mm -hmm. But that's a good way to kind of figure things out uh, and dial it in, you know. So once once the fish kick off that dry, or I mean not the dry, the uh, nymph, and they're just looking at the surface and they're eating the dry, you just cut the nymph off and you just dry fly fish. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, some scenarios like broken bow, you have to do more not deep nymphing, but um, more getting the flies down to where those fish are versus where you are a little bit shallower. Mm -hmm. You can do a hopper dropper setup a little bit more efficiently. And I know at Broken Bow, we do that quite a bit too. Mm -hmm. So it's a good tool to have in your kit, you know, to kind of cover bases. Do you, um, and I, and I was guilty of doing this on this last trip, but if it was like only a foot of water or a foot and a half, I just totally skipped by it and just went to the next bend in the in the stream mm -hmm. and just focused on those deeper areas, you know, where the fish are likely going to be stacked up. But I've fished with my friend uh, Trey up in, mm -hmm. in Broken Bow multiple times, and he's 
he'll tell me he's like, "There's fish right here in this yep. foot of water." Those riffles. But unless I can see them, I'm like, <laughs> I'm just not believing right. it. You know. Well, and um, that's a it's a good point. You know, um, when you come up to a section of water, just being able to kind of stop and watch. Sometimes you'll see those fish in those riffles, six inch riffle uh-huh. sitting there. Sometimes there's really big fish in there too, and a lot of people avoid or don't look at that water. Um, maybe they just walk right through it and they spook all the fish, but there's usually a good chance, oh, especially I, I in the summer, did that for sure. like the hot summer days, that oxygenated water sometimes will keep those fish in there. They get a little bit more oxygen from the the riffle turning over, mm-hmm. um, but also they move into those flats and those riffles to feed, you know, because the fish or the, the food's right there. Um, so there's there's definitely occasions, even like walking up to a stream, even if it's two inches of water, you want to kind of pay attention because I've actually seen... 24-inch trout with their backs hanging on the water, just resting, sitting in a small little section oh. of water. They're out of there as soon as they see you. So usually you're staying off 50, 60 feet, kind of looking around. And, you know, it depends on the river you're at, um, mm-hmm. what you're walking into. You know, that river, a big fish like we talked about earlier was probably in that 17, maybe 20-inch range is like massive for that body of water. Mm-hmm. But there's some rivers that are the same size but a little bit deeper that I've fished and I've seen almost 30-inch so right you know you just want to pay attention and be observant of what you're doing and um i think that's the biggest thing people can do is slow down and it'll make a big difference um before they actually start just whacking a fly in the water and spooking fish away yeah um some so the fish that we were catching primarily were cut bows mm-hmm. uh, they do have rainbows in there and then interestingly though um new mexico has it, uh, above where we were fishing, they went in there and killed all of the fish yep. because they were going to reintroduce, what is it, was it the Rio Grande? Uh, cutthroat. Cutthroat, mm-hmm. which was the native species, but I guess yep. the rainbows are a little more aggressive and they don't want them in there. Yeah, I think they just overtake the system and then the rainbows or the cutthroat don't have the, as much of a chance. I'm not as yeah. I'm not a biologist, so I don't yeah. know as much. But yeah, I know they did a couple different kills on two different rivers up there. I think the Pecos and then that river. Yeah. Um, to reestablish that native species, mm-hmm. and then everything below that will still continue to carry rainbows, and but everything above that dam will have native species again. Right, right. I, there was one time that I came up to this bend, and I started, and I didn't see a lot of fish hitting the surface. Like mm-hmm. occasionally, you'd hear one, you'd look over, or you'd see one. But and this was when it was raining. Uh, this one spot, there was like nonstop, just mm-hmm. fish coming to the surface, fish coming. So I. Throwing a dry fly, and I've got a, a it was uh, some kind of mayfly or something, and then I had a, a nymph on the on the bottom, and dude, I could not catch these fish. I I tried everything in my mm-hmm. fly kit, a and I, yeah, and uh, and went through like two different leaders, just cutting them, like you know, because I didn't want to do the t- yeah, 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 I didn't yeah. want to tie the tip. It takes too long. We'll get you there. We'll get yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I was trying to see with my naked eye like what they were hitting on, and whatever they whatever they were eating on the surface was too small for me to to pick up. Could you? So I was going to smaller flies, smaller flies. Wouldn't hit that man. And this was like, I probably this probably took an hour. Yeah. And I never, I got one strike like the first time I cast it in there before I even knew that it was a feeding frenzy, mm-hmm. and that was on like a, well, it was like an orange mayfly looking thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, yeah, the doculator maybe. Doculator, yeah. and then nothing, never again. And I'm watching the fish. It's the most maddening thing. Were you seeing their noses come up out of the water or were you seeing tail flicks? I could see everything. The whole fish? The whole fish. Huh. So, I mean, this is a good kind of 
thing to talk about is, you know, if you're looking at those fish and you see a nose coming up, they're eating dry flies off the surface. But sometimes, especially in low light situations, like those storms will mm-hmm. kick off hatches and those, those insects will start to hatch from the bottom and raise themselves to the surface so they can do their thing. And sometimes when they're doing that and you just see a tail flick instead of the head coming up, they're eating emergers. So stuff that's yeah. coming up to the surface getting trapped in the film and they're eating it just subsurface. And what I do in that situation okay, is... Okay, there was a lot of... I did notice when I was looking around, mm-hmm. there was a lot of insects flying around. Yeah, so and there's it, obviously a hatch coming up. There was off. a hatch. and I, But I was trying to imitate what, what those insects were, but it, clearly that's... Were they on the water? like Above the water. So, yeah, there are probably emergers coming up. Uh-huh. And those fish were coming up and splash. They're being real splashy because they're eating those emergers as they rise okay. to the surface or getting stuck in that surface film. So in that scenario, I typically will put like a a dry on and then off the back I'll run a, a merger pattern or like a RS2 or some sort of variation that mimics that insect coming up to the surface and that will make sometimes the biggest difference in the world. Well, they they had me fooled. <laughs> yeah. Freaking <laughs> maddening. Yeah, it can be that way. Um especially when there's a lot of insects, you know, they have a lot of food to choose from and they got your one fly, so sometimes I will change up my fly color maybe, maybe mm-hmm. make it a brighter kind of a tractor pattern I did that. or I'll do larger sometimes I'll go smaller you know I just change that up until I kind of figure out what's going on mm-hmm. just staying static is never going to fix it and obviously you sound like you've done you did the right thing and trying to change things up and figure out but why didn't on. it work come on they're fish <laughs> <laughs> that pea brain worked really well for you that's what keeps you coming back though <laughs> yeah. it was cool to see and that was the only like real feeding frenzy that I saw and it and like I said it lasted for I, I finally just left I was like I'll go find some fish and like under a rock and throw it yeah. and unnymph at them, you know. Well, and sometimes, you know, I've fished in some locations. One time we had this really good trip. I was hosting a trip in Canada to some of the Rocky Mountain rivers, and we had one of those storms, um, and it held. And the fishing was so good, we didn't want to stop during the hill because that it kicked off a green drake hatch, which a green drake is a lot bigger dry. It's, you know, the size of your thumb. Mm-hmm. And um, these fish did not care i mean every cast you catch a fish at one point i told my buddy i was like i wish i had a giant net i could just put each fish in so we could count how many fish or if they're eating multiple times (laughs) because it was nonsense and then finally the hell got so bad we had to take cover Uh. but it it stayed like that for a while and that those low light rainy storms sometimes kick that stuff off really well Mm -hmm. what is your favorite place to fish for trout Because I, I have, I think I've fished, I fished quite a bit up around Red River, mm-hmm. and there's a hatchery up around Cuesta, mm-hmm. which you can try to get below that. But a lot of that stuff is very wooded, and like I said, you spend time stuck yeah. in the trees for people like me. Uh, then I've I've fished quite a bit in Broken Bow, and uh, and now the Rio Castillo, and I like in elk hunting and stuff. I couldn't remember the little streams, but I've I've right, taken my rod in the truck and. Uh, after I, if I was lucky enough to get an elk out a day or two to fly fish. Yeah. But so I'm very limited on like, you're, you're fishing all over. Yeah. I mean, for trout, I, I really like anywhere in the West, um, just to kind of paint it broadly. I mean, everywhere has good trout out East is really good as well. A little bit different fishing style, mm-hmm. but out West, I like to be able to get away from people and just walk and I'll put some miles in and, um, that's the nice thing is you can do that. Yeah. Uh, some locations are harder to do so. But, I mean, I'd say definitely 
Montana's really one of the top on my list for probably a majority of people it is just because of the wide open spaces and the access laws and stuff like that make it really great for fly fishermen or mm-hmm. any fishermen. Um, and then Canada, we've had a lot of great trips up there fishing out of Calgary with some of my buddies here. Um, well, I can't go to Canada until I know. President or Prime Minister Dum Dum gets his head out of his rear end. So we'll see yeah, if that happens. Maybe a little challenging. <laughs> um, the, yeah, I mean, Montana is a really good place and, uh, Wyoming, I mean, even fewer folks there, you know, you yeah. got to. They've got some cool stuff that you can do the high alpine lakes and kind of hike for those golden trout and stuff. Put some miles in. I mean, you're that's the big thing is I can go to a river and see a lot of people and try to figure out where I want to fish, or I can go somewhere where there's nobody and just hike in and put in the work and mm-hmm. find fish. And that's kind of my my favorite thing to do. Um, but yeah, all those western states are great. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's do this. Let's take a quick break. We'll come back and get into uh, some other species, both on the freshwater and saltwater side of things. Uh, awesome destinations that, that you've traveled to in pursuit of those species. And uh, and then maybe a little bit of history on Orvis and catch and release because uh, it wasn't always that way. Uh, that segment brought to you by NUMA, geared for the outdoors in the Durango pullover. That's what I was wearing uh, fly fishing. You can find their entire lineup of outdoor apparel at numaoutdoors.com. And remember, 20% off your entire order with that promo code LONESTAR20. We'll be right back with more on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. If you're looking for a thermal hog hunt near DFW, then 3 Curl Outfitters has you covered. Offering fully guided thermal hunts just minutes south of Dallas, guide scout daily to put you on the bacon. Using thermal imaging technology to hunt feeders, crop fields, and river bottoms, you get unlimited hogs and no kill fees. Visit www.3curl.com. Also offering corporate hunts and food and lodging available by request. Book at 3curl.com or call 214-455-0940. The biggest and best Texas hunting show is back. The 2022 Hunter's Extravaganza is August 19th through the 21st at the Freeman Coliseum Expo Hall in San Antonio. Check out Gator Country's live alligators. See the best bucks taken last season in our annual deer contest. Free entry for police, first responders, active military with an ID, and kids under five. Don't miss the 46th Annual Hunter's Extravaganza. Details and tickets at ttha.com. In the market for a compact track loader, check out the Bobcat Advantage, where Bobcat track loaders squared off against other brands in a variety of tests and challenges. Whether you're looking for performance advantages, uptime protection, or quality design, Bobcat compact track loaders are the best built machines in the industry. But don't take our word for it. Watch the videos at BobcatAdvantage.com or see Bobcat machines in person at one of our nine North Texas locations. Visit BobcatOfNorthTexas.com or call 469-586-0000 today. Gonna back this boat into the water Find a way to win a couple dollars Where the man says there's a cobra coming down Bring it on, I've seen it all by now I can catch them shallow, I can catch them deep Open water or the back of the creek Cable Smith, welcoming each and every one of you back into SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. We're still talking fly fishing with our bud Stephen Palmer of Orvis. Uh, this segment of the presentation is proudly brought to you by Big and J Whitetail Attractants and Black 
Rifle Coffee, America's Coffee Company. Well, let's get back into it here. Uh, You know, Stephen, we talked trout fishing before the break. Mm, Let's get into some other stuff now. What about other species? It could be saltwater. It could be South America. It could be wherever. What are some of the other cool fly fishing destinations that you've experienced? Yeah, I mean, we have a lot of great stuff here in Texas. I mean, from the little rivers and stuff for Guadalupe bass down in central Texas to the coast for redfish. But, you know, expanding beyond that, uh, I've recently been able to go to Bolivia and I've got Iceland planned for next year. And is going Bolivia, back to Bolivia Golden Dorado or what is that? Yeah, Golden Dorado. Uh, but they have other species as well. So last year I went and did a Golden Dorado trip, had a really amazing trip and caught some really nice fish. That's um, on my list, short list oh, too, man. because... I think I'm going to do a uh, a cast and blast in Argentina. Oh yeah, for and so do Dove and then Golden Dorado. Yeah, and Argentina has good Golden Dorado populations. It's a little bit different fishery. We're fishing in the the jungles, fishing rivers, and doing a lot of hiking to get to those higher upper reaches where the bigger fish are. And it's just mm. super clear water. Argentina, I think you fish rivers as well, but it's a lot of like uh, lake fishing stuff mm-hmm. as well. And Smaller fish, but bigger. I don't know. I've seen some of those lakes. They have some 50, 60-pound Dorado. Mm. But both both places, I imagine, are amazing because Dorado are pretty aggressive fish, and so it's it's pretty cool. And if you can combine it with the bird hunting, even better, right? Right, right. Um, yeah, and <clears throat> trying to think, you know, Christmas Island, I've been out there. That's uh, in the middle of Pacific, and that was an awesome fishery for different species as well, bonefish and uh, permit. No permit there, but giant trevally, oh, GTs, yeah. um, triggerfish. Where's, I mean, where are the rooster fish at? Those things look pretty nice. Yeah, Costa Rica and Baja are two major ones. Uh-huh. Um, Baja is a lot what they do on the beach, you know, chasing them on foot. Uh, I've done that once. That's definitely upper tier experience. Like you, you have to be on point with those fish. They're there's a lot going on. You're running and casting and <laughs> there's sand dunes behind you. So it's a, it's an experience in its own. I, I definitely want to get back there. And then, uh, Costa Rica, they do a lot of it off the boats when they're fishing for mahi and other stuff as well. So yeah, there, that's a, that's a super cool fish. Um, and there's a lot of great species. And I think that's the cool thing with any fishing, but fly fishing really can take you around the world. And it's almost just like hunting, you know, we're doing a lot of sight casting right. with fly fishing. And um, so you're leading the fish, you're you're preparing yourself to make that cast, dealing with wind, stuff like that, um, just like you would if you're dove hunting, you know. you got to mm. lead the bird. Do all I've only fly fished uh, Texas coast one time for redfish and black drum. Yep. And I didn't have much luck. I mean, I saw a lot of fish. I, d- I only hooked one, mm-hmm. a big black drum, uh, and he got it into the mangroves and broke me off. Yeah. So I didn't even land him. But the tug was like nothing I've right. ex- had experienced on a fly rod previously. I mean, you're going from uh, 12 to 15 inch, 15 inch uh, broken bow mm-hmm. rainbows to you know, a 15 pound yeah. fish is a, a totally different experience on a fly rod. Yeah, and they just fight so much different. You know, they're just bulldogs. They want to get away from you and. They're going to pull you into your drag, and your reel is really going to matter at that point. The uh, get, Definitely got to get back down there. And those are things that... Well, it's like the carp that we'll talk about Yeah, Ray Roberts. <laughs> or, oh, wait, don't say the name of the lake. Is the, these guys are worse than duck hunters, the uh, the freshwater carp fishermen. Wow. Yeah, 
uh, Gable asked for a pin, and I was sent him a what, what was that in like Tanzania or something? Uganda, uh, Uganda. Or, 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 <laughs> it was a lake that was bordered by Uganda and Rwanda. I was like, yeah. He he asked, send me some talking points for the the podcast, and I sent him. The first thing was like, well, first we're going to talk about the GPS coordinates on Ray Roberts. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. carping's fun. I mean, I've, I actually have done that with another guy that used to work at uh, Orvis. Mm-hmm. What was it? What's his name? Benjamin. Benjamin. That's yeah. right. Uh, he took me there, and th- I did have I caught I don't know a handful of fish that day, That's and that awesome. was like poor man's uh, red fishing. Yeah, much harder I think mm. for most, um, just because the stealthy side of it, but. Yeah, they. Uh, that's definitely a good fishery, and you know, expanding all sight on the casting. coast. Yeah, it's all mm-hmm. sight casting. Like you, you can occasionally catch one blind casting, and I've done it maybe twice ever. Mm-hmm. Um, but majority of the time, you're you're finding those fish, trying to get as close as possible, and having a really good presentation. If you can do that, you'll catch them. That's the that's the hard part. Like that will definitely make you a better fisherman for other species is chasing carp. And they're everywhere. I mean, they're in the rivers, the lakes. So what's the best time of year to, to go to a, a local reservoir? And if you, if that's something around, that you're interested yeah. in doing, trying, you know, trying your hand. Yeah. Um, usually carping. I would say when water temps start to warm in the spring uh-huh. into that 65 range about, you know, it's kind of the perfect time for most fish. Um, all the way through summer, and then when the water temps start dipping down, they around here local wise, anyways, they just kind of disappear. You can still find them in a lot of the creeks and rivers. So the Brazos is a really good one to find carp, and along with um, smallmouth buffalo, which is a native species. Um, they they're fun. massive. I've only I've yeah, shot them big. shot them with the bow before. <laughs> Did you eat them? Uh, I don't have any comment on that. <laughs> um, I've heard they're good. It's, you I'm know what? It's kind of it. like uh, it's kind of like feral hogs. When you yeah, shoot a pile of pile of them, and you throw them in the boat, and you keep fishing for five or six more hours, yeah, uh, no, they're not they're not getting eaten. But I understand. But they're native, but you know but they <laughs> do what the native side gets me. I almost it's interesting. I'm not getting all that stuff. But, <laughs> uh, what about the carp though? I mean, that's the main thing that bow fishermen are shooting. Yeah, I don't. You know, it's the same thing with that. I think different scenarios you know if, if you're fishing for carp and you're putting them back cool if you're killing them i mean maybe you should try it at least once and see if you like it <laughs> maybe you might i've heard there but I mean, also they brought I, them here for food back in the 1850s i think is what it was well i, I mean in some places they introduced them to com, to uh combat grass problems yeah grass carp specifically i mean yeah. that's why you see grass carp in golf ponds because <laughs> they're trying to combat all that moss and junk yeah but um, as far as those fish go, if you're shooting an invasive and you don't, you know, I'm never going to throw stones at anyone that's yeah. not. If you go and shoot 20 feral hogs in a night and you're shooting them yeah. with thermal and half of them are gut shot because they were follow-up shots, I, you know, I'll try to clean one. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't want to waste the whole thing, but uh, it's, it's, not a, it's not realistic. And people, this is not even, has nothing to do with what we were talking about today, but people <laughs> bitch all the time about, well, you should have you should have donated them. Well, you can't donate feral hogs in Texas. No, and who alive. wants a, a gut shot feral hog that's been sitting in the the Texas summer heat for eight hours mm-hmm. over the course of a night? I mean, it's nasty. Yeah, and a lot of that, you know, it's it's touchy subject on both sides. And and we're at Orvis, so whatever. let's just get away from it. <laughs> I, I know I'm whatever people want to do. 
it's what they want to do as long as they're in the regulations. Now, I did eat, uh, and maybe it's because it is such an iconic native species. When I shot uh, an al- a big alligator gar uh, down in South Texas, I ate it. Yeah. Actually, there was a restaurant there that you could bring your Cook fresh it. your fresh uh, catch to, and yeah, it was a uh, was a little it was a little chewy, but the flavor profile was was nice. Yeah, that's I've heard is really good. I've been wanting to try it myself, and one of these days I'll keep one, clean it. But that that one's more touchy for me, just because that is a species that's been around here for millions of years, right? Mm-hmm. And they're native. Um, in alligator gar, they're they're a one fish limit, I think, per day, right? Uh, uh, if I remember right, I, they're trying to turn it into a game species. I think. Yeah, um, I've but been, I have. It's been years since I've done it, but I've heard they're great. So I don't know why. You know, I think people just need to try more stuff, and they might find they like it, and then you're not trashing a bunch of fish. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So highly recommend the carping if you want to yeah. get into that, and it's so accessible. Any reservoir. Yeah, it's I mean, gonna have carp in pretty it. Pretty much every lake around here has carp in them. It's if you can find them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you're just basically walking the the flats, the shallows. Yeah, you're looking for fish. Um, and a lot of it is pre work, looking at Google Maps and stuff, trying to figure out where those might be, mm-hmm. and then going and explore. And sometimes you find a lot, and sometimes you find a couple, and you just got to put in the work. And that's the thing uh, with carp. It's it's more because I could like if I gave you a GPS spot. Doesn't mean there's. I'd send you a picture of a of a giant carp in my hands. (laughs) Yeah, I'd hope so. But you know, that's the thing. It's like they're not always there. There's some places that are more consistent. Hey, Stephen, show me what flies I need. Yeah, before you give me your GPS coordinates. Yeah, (laughs) come in here. I mean, we can definitely. We've got flies and everything set up for carp fishing. So, um, every body of water. That's one thing I will say is every body of water fishes a little different for carp. Sometimes we actually will fish almost nymph size flies and sometimes we're fishing bigger stuff mm. up to a size eight or uh, 10 is usually the biggest I go for this fishery. But I know places out like the um, Columbia out West and Washington, they're fishing bigger stuff or Michigan. They're fishing big flies for carp and they're aggressive up there. They eat gobies and mm. it's kind of an interesting place for that. But yeah, we can definitely help you out with carp fishing and get you at least geared up for the right stuff and kind of well, I have the gear put out there. I just need I just need some flies. the GPS unit yeah, oh, yeah. or uh, location. <laughs> yeah, um, I, got I got flies. I've duck hunted enough on Ray Roberts. I know oh, where you the know. damn carp are. Yeah, it's not hard to find them. No, that's the thing. Especially there, they're everywhere. So you find somewhere to go, you just go and explore it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, some of the actual some of the flies you gave me. Well, and that's another cool thing about the Orvis website is depending on where your fly fishing destination is, mm-hmm. you can look on Orvis's main website and get a fishing report that is supplied by the local guides. Yep. And so we did that for the Rio Castillo. And I don't know which nymph, the purple, little tiny purple one was. No, it might have been a midge. Uh, mm-hmm. And then also the Copper John is what mm-hmm. I caught. There was three fish in a row on where the yeah. guide was like, what do you, what would you put on there? <laughs> None your business. I was like, this is a, here, look at it. And he's like, <laughs> oh, this is a copper john. It <laughs> <laughs> makes sense, copper john. But I remember, <laughs> you, I remember specifically when I was in here t- two, two weeks ago, you're looking at it and you're like, oh, you need some copper johns. She's like, actually, you already have a few in your Yeah. Yeah, just orbis.com forward slash fishing reports. So if you go to that website, it will, you can look up a lot of rivers. Not all of them are on there, but even if they're not on there, if you do a Google search for fly fishing whatever river you're going to mm-hmm. you can usually find hatch charts um 
river conditions, you know, things like that that really matter. You know? Right. But the Orvis website's really good for that. Yeah. Um, yeah, highly recommend it. And and here's the cool thing. So yes, we fished with uh with guides the first day, and that was really helpful for. I think there was um between the nine people that were fishing, besides my dad and my brother, I think three other guys had never thrown a fly rod in their lives. Mm-hmm. So obviously we needed guides. We needed the, you know, the professional. Helps the learning curve. My dad even said afterwards, he's like, man, Steve was so great. It was, uh, you know, he helped me figure out how to cast it, where to put it, you know. And mm-hmm. But there's a lot of technique that goes into that. Yeah. But you, anyone can figure it out. And then the next day, um, he, he didn't need a guide. You know, so yeah, it's not as complicated as people think it is. I mean, it's but also guide helps too when you're fishing a new a new body of water. Right, helps that learning that learning curve of what's going on in that river. Those guides spend every day on the river. They know what's happening. Mm-hmm. You know, um, they take that challenge away of figuring things out or that learning curve that takes you a little bit longer than most. But that's why we do free fly fishing classes throughout the spring and summer. We kind of just wrapped them up for now. We're going to maybe try to do some more in the fall, depending on how busy we are. But um, we'll do those 101s and 201s and 301 classes. And those, the 101 and 201 are free for people to show up. And um, we do limit the number of people. Mm-hmm. And then I'll do private lessons. I do a lot of those for people that are, a lot of people don't plan out. And they're like, I'm leaving tomorrow. I need a private lesson. <laughs> plan a little bit further in advance, but um, we'll get you as, as up to speed as possible with any any way you want to do it. So, um, what percentage of people come in here? Not not just this location, but in general, that have maybe fly fished once or never fly fished, and they're mm-hmm. like, "Hey, I'm leaving for uh, Montana tomorrow. I need everything." Is <gasps> um, that does that happen a lot? Yeah, it happens a fair amount. Uh-huh. I think a lot of people. We get a lot of new fly fishermen, uh, fly fishermen, women, uh, and they. Is that a growing, growing demographic on the ladies? Oh yeah, that's. And, good. I mean, it's for the last eight years I've seen it pick up quite a bit, mm. to the point where, you know, previously being on the river, you might not see any women, and now you can go out and you see multiple, you know, on their own doing their mm-hmm. own thing. It's pretty cool to see, and we teach quite a few, um, and that's the thing is. We get a lot because we teach those entry classes. They make them super simple and easy to learn. It doesn't make it a challenge. Um, and I think that's the big thing with Orvis is expanding the fly fishermen and the fly fisher women in the sport and making everybody feel like they're accepted, you know? Because it's not hard. It's just everybody thinks about it being hard. They watch River Run through it, and i got to do that. Uh, <laughs> I have to false cast 37 times yeah. before I... Yeah. Oh, you know, one other thing I just thought of, which I've, which I do have experience doing, is, uh, and it's, it's a fun springtime activity where you can catch a lot of fish. Is the sand bass run? Yeah, for a sure. A lot of our, you know, um, southern uh, lakes, reservoirs, when those mm-hmm. fish start heading into the the feeder creeks, uh, man, that is, that can be some action packed fishing. Yeah. Once they're there, you can cast. And, and if you want to eat fish, I mean, shoot. that's a great one. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I mean. That one's really easy to find too, because once you start seeing all the, see the any cars on the bridges in here, though, yeah, just uh, we're still out. <laughs> we're, we're, I placed the order. They says like a ten-year back order, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Orvis has been around since when? 1856. Do you think in 1856 they sold fillet knives? Oh yeah, for sure. For sure, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. along w- with everything else, probably. Right. When creels and all that. When did, if you had to pick like a decade, of when that mentality of because I know it, 
in bass fishing, it's when Ray Scott was like, he was right. the one that was like, hey, let's let's start putting the big ones back, and that was uh, '60s essentially. Mm-hmm. And then you had the advent of the professional bass fishing, the Bassmaster um, series, and and then it was yeah, we're gonna we're gonna put them all back, yeah, uh, yeah from public water anyway. And then they taste like crap, so nobody... That's not... You know, that is not... I, know it's I not. will not advocate... He's telling us to eat buffalo, and he's saying that largemouth bass <laughs> tastes like crap. No, that's the, the general census now, because right. they've been protected, right? So yeah. people are like, I don't want them because it tastes like crap. Well, no. Yeah, it's like actually a sunfish. Every sunfish delicious. is Delicious. Delicious. Uh, yeah. But so when would you say it changed for, for fly fishing? Or it could have just <laughs> been uh, like... a. In you know, for the entire community, like maybe it was the the '60s where we were like, "Hey, let's uh, start to conserve some of these instead of putting yeah, them all on a stringer." I definitely think it's been with fly fishermen something that's ongoing for a longer period of time. But mm-hmm. I'd, I'd say in the last fifteen, maybe years, it's really picked up quite a bit um, in the way of conservation, trying to keep those fish around for others, you know, and so people can go back and continue to fish them. You know, just like they're trying to do in New Mexico and bring back those native species, you know, mm-hmm. the conservation side's definitely a big part in the fly fisher or fly angler's um, thoughts. But, yeah, I think people definitely still keep fish, and I I support it. Yeah. It's good to – or it's good to continue that because if not, kids and people are growing up now are never going to know what real food was. <laughs> right, right. So – yeah, I don't. I don't know. I imagine in the '60s, I remember reading stuff that people were putting back fish back then. But I think in the last 15 years, it's really yeah. ramped up. Especially, on I've the been doing this side. almost 15 years, and so I would say that it was it was predominant when I started. Like that yeah. that ideology of from the, from trout fishermen. Yeah, yeah. Which yeah, I think trout, trout fishermen sometimes that lends to kind of an uppity you know reputation, like among other anglers, like oh those trout those trout fishermen are elitist. They only they put all their <laughs> fish back. Uh, I encourage those folks to try fly fishing. Yeah. If you want to keep the fish, do that. I don't do care. It. Just read uh, the regulations. Uh, cause you can get where we were fishing on the Rio Castillo was, number one, it was barbless. Yep. And number two, it was catch and release only. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and there's a lot of fisheries. I mean, even like Broken Bow's changed its regulations in the past three years or so to only be able to keep three fish, rainbows of any size. I think browns have to be over 30 inches. So, Good know. luck catching one of those. Yeah, hopefully they can get to that point before they get, you know, and that's the thing. Is if I shot a 30-inch brown, I'm going to just take all the badass pictures I can and then let that sucker go. Yeah, I mean, just like a 80-pound catfish is probably not the best one to eat. Right, right, <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I'm game for anybody eating fish as long as they're, they're doing what's right. I'll tell you what I would not do, though. You mentioned the coast a second ago. Mm-hmm. There's no way I'm putting back illegal redfish or trout. Yeah, <laughs> Sorry, yeah. it's not happening. <laughs> it tastes too good. I am glad they that they good. reduced the limit yeah. uh, from 10 fish to 5 fish across most of the South Texas coast mm-hmm. um, because realistically, a lot of those fish get freezer burned because you catch them for your family. You know, if it's just you and your family, you're not eating 10 trout, you know? And so you put them, a lot of people right. bag them up, they're on vacation, they take them home, throw them in the freezer. Uh, now five trout. Yeah, that can make it. I mean, I've got a yeah, family I mean, of five. Meal. That's great for us. Yeah. Easy. Yeah. And I think that's my biggest thing is like when people take an animal or take a, a fish, make sure you eat it. Like don't freeze or burn it. Dove, I imagine are a big part of that too. You oh, know, throw them no in doubt. the bottom and oh, there's one five years later. I had, <laughs> I had a, uh, and every dove hunt is different as far as what I put the dove breasts in at the right. end of the hunt. This one happened to be a, uh, you know, those kettle chips. 
Oh, like yeah. my kids had been pounding chips during the hunt. <laughs> and I was like, I need something to put these in. And I threw all the clean dove breasts <laughs> in that bag. And like four months later, I found it in the bottom of the freezer. And I was yeah. like, these are freezer burn. Oh, well, the kids are going to eat them anyway. <laughs> I, no, yeah, we didn't waste them. Yeah. <laughs> just like, a lot of stuff. It had to be slow cooked, but, you know. Yeah. Uh, they That's were the still thing. fine. Fish just feel bad so quick in the freezer. You know, they don't last forever. Yeah. The, uh, yeah, and I, I see a lot of people trying to, you know, it's about the numbers. Same thing in like Texoma. They're trying to get their full limit, right? But mm-hmm. are they eating all those fish? Hopefully they're having a party that next day and they're just eating them. Right, know? right. Um, I think we do as a fishing community need to be cognizant of the of that reality. It's like, yeah, well, the limit is, uh, what is it on crappie? 25? Yeah. 25 crappie. Okay, well, unless you're having a fish fry or you're planning on eating them relatively quickly, those things are not going to last for that long. No. Um, and I'm not telling anyone don't don't catch your limit. I'm just saying, yeah. If you're not going to eat 25 in the next month or so, keep five, keep, eat them, and go back keep the next. Whatever day. it is that you need, gives you an excuse to go fishing. More. But everyone, everyone I know, and myself included, has has felt bad at one point in their life because they they kept a limit of fish, and then they were like looking at it. I was like, man, these have been in the freezer too long, uh, including me. And that is not <laughs> that is not uh, admirable behavior no. for any of us. So we need to do better about that. Um, yeah, that, and it is. It'll give you more opportunity to go fish because now you got to go catch five more. And, right. You know, we're trying to spend more time in the wilderness. So. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, okay, Orvis has been around since the 18, 1830s, you said? 56. 1856. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the original location is in Vermont? Manchester, Vermont. They're still there. And um, it's family-owned still to this day? Family-owned, yeah. Charles F. Orvis owned it, I think, until 19... 19- 1965 or his family i think that's when the perkins family purchased it mm. and they've been owners since okay um the only other thing i have on my list is and and because this was my first time owning a pair of these um boa boots yeah. wading boots and i've i'd had lace-up ones i'd been the guy that just wore tennis shoes before you know um these things were sweet yeah, and they're pretty awesome I know some people still prefer laces. I mean, I'm looking at some right here on the shelf. Mm-hmm. But for me, man, the boa is just a game changer. It's so easy to put on and take off, but also you don't have to readjust it midday. Or if you do, it's just a click. It's just a couple clicks. And you don't, if your hands ready. are cold, you don't have to mess with shoelaces. Yep. Some people worry about those things breaking, but laces can break too, and you just carry extra. Mm. And what the boa system is kind of nice is they do a lifetime warranty on the boa system, specifically not necessarily the boot, but the um, – you contact Boa and they'll send you a repair kit and fix it. And so you can just keep it in your bag. We sell, we sell the crew pair kits. Mm-hmm. Um, I, over the last 10 or 12 years, I've had three or four pairs of Boas and never really had an issue, knock on wood, with the Boa system. Mm-hmm. I just wear the boots out over, you know, time. But, um, yeah, they make a huge difference in that new boat, that new boot, the pro boot, it's got the Michelin sole. So I mean, super grippy. I mean, I, I bet you, you could tell a difference oh, yeah. and just being comfortable all day long. Um, and you had the full on pro. And I was, man. and oh, here's the, here's the funny thing. So the second day when it was just my dad and I, the only, I guess, diehard anglers in the group that were fishing, uh, we quit after probably like two o'clock cause it really just started coming down and we're we're getting pretty wet at that point. We go back to camp, and there's there's 16 guys on this trip. Mm, big trip. Yeah, and uh, everyone's got on their rain gear, and I just left my waders and my boots on for the rest of the day. <laughs> You're <laughs> just comfortable. It was so so muddy and so wet everywhere. I was like, 
Everyone's getting soaked. Why would I take these off? Yeah, good call. Yeah. <laughs> that's how yeah, comfortable I mean, they were. That's the thing. Yeah, and those pro the. Well, I'm sitting there playing spades in my Did you waders. Have the zips. No. Did you get the zips? They're back ordered. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Even more so when you get those, you're like, <laughs> oh yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, they're just so comfortable. That is and convenient for the PP factor. Yeah, definitely. They made it even better so than the previous zips we had years ago. The zipper goes a little lower, so it's even more convenient. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Um, you are headed to Washington here in a couple of days. Yep. What are you doing up there? No, if you guys think he's one of those snooty uh, fly fishing guys, <laughs> this will change your opinion. Uh, we're going to go try to find a bear to eat. <laughs> nice. So you're going um, black bear hunting. Yes, sir. Yep. Yeah, we'll be up there. Well, I'll be up there seven or eight days. Nice. Um, backpack trip, so hiking in. And you've been working out? As much as I possibly can for the last two and a half months. Yep. Nice. Uh, it's good. I've been doing the mountain tough stuff, so... They've got, anybody ever wants to learn how to work out again, it's been a while, <laughs> go to that program. You can do it at home. Yeah. It's nice. Um, yeah. You know. And that's spot and stock. Spot and stock. Yep. Looking for that. We're also going to be scouting for some other stuff while we're up there, of course, you know, trying to find everything. Yeah. Uh, my buddy's from there, so we'll be looking for some mule deer and some other things while we're there. Cool. And um, hopefully we can get a, at least one, maybe two bears down one one each and then pack them out that's been the learning experience this is really my first western hunt mm-hmm. I've hunt i hunted growing up here of course deer and dove and duck and all that stuff and um so learning all the nuances to the western stuff of figuring out tags and um how to bring the meat back yeah and all that good stuff has been a good learning experience you know packing so, the right food for six days in the back country all that kind of stuff you're flying there yeah, I am flying there. So you'll try to freeze the meat and then ship it back home? Yeah, the idea is fine. We've got a game processor that we're going to try to call or we have called. and We'll take it to them and either we'll process it ourselves, package it, and then just take it there to freeze it or we'll just drop it off so they can do it. So mm-hmm. depending on how much time we have, um, freeze it hard and then I'll pack it as a check bag and mm-hmm. bring it home and get to work on getting everything taken care of so I can keep it in the freezer or can it or whatever the case is. Yeah. It's funny the reaction you get at the airport when you do that kind of stuff. Yeah. And uh, I've only had positive experience because the, the people, the TSA workers are like, hey, Johnny, come look at this. Look at this. <laughs> this guy has a mountain lion in his, in, I mean, on, on his carry-on cooler. Yeah. Like, and there was a frozen mountain lion yeah. like pelt in there uh, or like a bunch of blue wing teal coming back from the Texas coast. Yep. You know? I've done it for pheasant and now Utah and some other stuff as well. Just that one, I just carried it on mm-hmm. stuck it up in the overhead <laughs> right yeah um, in the i've cooler. shipped bears so uh in alberta i shot two black bear and uh we went to walmart and got little totes and then mm-hmm. we'd froze them and then put them in those you know rubber made things yeah and then ch- checked those no problem so it's yeah, i think been, people get uh bogged down in the logistics of of getting the meat home but airlines are actually pretty yeah. easy to work with if you read it um I've, i was actually just reading through it this other day and yeah there's no problem with doing they're any way of that. more friendly towards dead animals than they are guns <laughs> yeah it's very interesting <laughs> or something even occasions other stuff that you know you wouldn't think so that's one thing i've been like really paying attention to is like what i pack in my carry-on and what i pack in my check make sure everything's in the right place yeah um make sure that having a knife is in your in yeah. your check bag yep because they'll take it yeah. Yeah. Hopefully, it's still there when it ends at the other the other end. <laughs> um, that's one thing I've been talking with a lot of 
people that are big in the hunting industry that I've became friends with is how to get the meat back. So that's been helpful. Mm-hmm. Brian Barney is one of them. You know, you helped me kind oh, of yeah. figure some from, stuff out. From Eastman's. Yep. Yeah, Elevated. Brian's a good dude. And that guy is, is a, a freaking killer. Yeah. He is an incredible bow hunter. He is. I met him when I went to that winter Western Hunting Summit, and uh-huh. then ever since we've been talking, because he, he does a lot of fly fishing also. So. Yeah. Well, that, dude, that's, a, that's a great resource that you've got on speed dial. Um, if you have any other questions... Yeah, man, I'll call you. <laughs> I'm I here. Got you on speed dial, <laughs> He's like, look, looked at me a little funny there. Uh, well, hey, man, Stephen, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me here in the store today, and uh, I've certainly enjoyed putting all of the gear to the test in New Mexico. And uh, now that I have all of these nice toys to play with, I'm going to have to expand my yeah. horizons a little bit yeah, more. Get out. We'll, we'll figure something out. I know out. a guy we'll that could fish. take me to Montana. I was going to say, we'll go fish somewhere. <laughs> we'll figure out something. I've got a little raft. We'll go float some local stuff. All right. Sounds like a plan, buddy. Well, thanks again. All right. Yeah, thank you, and I appreciate the opportunity. So there you go. A little fly fishing talk uh, with our good friend Stephen Palmer from Orvis. You know, And fly fishing is one of those things that I absolutely I enjoy it. I just need to make more time to do it. And part of that is uh, just where I live, you know, location-wise. Not a lot of great trout fisheries around, but like we said, other options like carping or, uh, you know, if you live in the hill country, get after those Guadalupe bass. Uh, the uh, the opportunities are, are limitless. Anything you can catch with the traditional rod and reel, uh, you can target with a fly rod as well. Uh, that segment of the presentation was proudly brought to you by All Seasons Feeders and Blinds. If you're tired of having to use a ladder or back in the pickup, right up next to the feeder to have to fill it, then you need to check out the Stand and Fill lineup. 300, 600, and 1,000 pound models. So easy. Stand there and fill it up. That's right. It's the Stand and Fill. You can find it at allseasonsfeeders.com. Unfortunately, we are out of time for today. Gotta go. Gotta get out of here. Thanks to both of our guests, uh, Stephen Palmer, as well as Owen Fitzsimmons of Texas Parks and Wildlife. Uh, Thanks to all of our sponsors, for making this show possible. Thanks to you, the listener, for being a part of SCI's Lone Star Outdoors show. Until next time, I'm Cable Smith saying, y'all have a great week in the outdoors. I don't want to die in the bag of Hank Williams' Cadillac Crucified on a treble clip made of gold Now the music made me quiver I gave it my heart, my soul, and my liver Now I'm thinking about turning this rig around and heading home